0: My fellow Americans, today I want to update the world on our efforts to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon.
1: I wasn't surprised personally.
0: Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran
1: nuclear deal because the president had telegraphed this ever since he started campaigning for the presidency.
0: The Iranians are very good negotiators. The Persians are always great negotiators. They are laughing at us back in Iran.
1: His secretary of state has been saying that absent a sort of miracle deal with the Europeans, the president was going to walk away.
2: President Trump's been pretty clear. This deal is uh, very flawed. He's directed the administration to try and fix it. And uh, if we can't fix it, he's gonna withdraw from the deal.
0: It's pretty straightforward.
1: Foreign officials were also saying that they believed that Trump would back out after having discussions with him, French President Emmanuel Macron said as much just a few days ago. On Iran, we disagree on the JCPOA, but I believe we can come up with something that can deal with the fundamental issue of the JCPOA, which is the nuclear issue, but also deal with these other three issues that aren't included. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance and fanfare, and And at the end, he chose a very dramatic move that was really sort of outside the bounds of what we normally think of as America's role in foreign policy making. He broke an agreement that was made by the United States.
2: I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're talking about President Trump's momentous decision to back out of the Iran nuclear deal. Yes, people knew it was coming. And yes, this is very much in keeping with the president's general approach to foreign policy. But the fact that President Trump is removing the U.S. from this landmark international agreement that was negotiated by Barack Obama in 2015, that's something that will have wide-ranging effects on the geopolitical landscape. What we know is that it's going to further shake up America's relationship with Iran. It could potentially bring the U.S. closer to military conflict in that part of the world, but it also has an impact on America's relationship with Europe, and it's gonna have an impact on President Trump's planned sit-down with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which is now scheduled to occur in Singapore next month. Early Thursday morning, North Korea released three American prisoners ahead of that meeting. It was a big moment for Trump. The president and the first lady emerged from this government jet at Joint Base Andrews, followed by these three joyful Americans who had been captive. They're all smiles as they hold up peace signs in front of a giant American flag on the tarmac. And for Trump, this moment served as one of several compelling pieces of evidence that his brash and turbulent approach to foreign policy is working, and that he's been able to shake up the status quo enough to get some serious concessions from North Korea. And it seems like he thinks that that approach could work in Iran, too. But the question is now that the US is backing out of the Iran nuclear deal, what's going to happen next? And moreover, what happens when a president renegs on an agreement with other foreign leaders? What message does that send to the rest of the world? And how does this decision telegraph Trump's future foreign policy actions? Because it turns out that this one announcement is, in fact, a very big
1: deal. I don't think it's overstating it to say that this is the most significant foreign policy decision that the president has made thus far. It certainly unwinds the signature foreign policy achievement of President Barack Obama's second term. That's John Hudson. And I'm a State Department reporter with The Washington Post.
2: Among other things, he covers U.S. diplomatic relations with Iran. He actually went to the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna earlier this year to talk to the people who had inspected Iranian nuclear facilities. So he knows this stuff inside and out. So... I'm going to tell you what I understand about the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, and you tell me if that is a pretty correct understanding.
0: Sure. So, Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States together were international partners.
2: So basically, the U.S., the U.K., France and Germany. And China and Russia. And the European has Union.
0: Has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive, long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. They basically get Iran
2: to agree to the deal where they continue to have a nuclear program for peaceful purposes, but they have to significantly curtail how they go
0: about that. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off.
2: That they have to eliminate some of their like technological capabilities to make sure that they can not
0: actually build a bomb. Because of this deal, Iran will not produce the highly enriched uranium and weapons grade plutonium that form the raw materials necessary for a nuclear bomb.
2: And then they have to allow international inspectors to come in and make sure that they're adhering to that and they're not trying to build a bomb in secret.
0: Inspectors will have 24-7 access to
2: Iran's key nuclear facilities. And in exchange for that, The international community
0: was lifting these economic sanctions against Iran. Both America's own sanctions, and sanctions imposed by the United Nations Security Council. Basically meaning that
2: uh, companies around the world can, and particularly companies in America and in Europe, can do business with Iran, and Iran can sell stuff to them, buy stuff from them, and essentially make money off of that.
0: Right. So there's a very clear incentive for Iran to follow through. Okay.
2: Is is there anything missing in that explanation?
1: (laughs) No. I mean, I think that that accurately describes what the goal was. And for the Obama administration, what they saw was fears of a growing possibility of conflict in the Middle East. The Israelis were routinely threatening to launch military strikes against Iran in order to set back their nuclear program. And in order to curtail the program in the near, near term, it was a goal of the Obama administration to make some
0: sort of an agreement. The path of violence and rigid ideology, a foreign policy based on threats to attack your neighbors or eradicate Israel, that's a dead end. And they realized pretty early
1: on that this was an agreement that wasn't gonna be able to address the whole gamut of international issues and grievances with Iran that was going to be able to continue a ballistic missile program, for instance. There was no illusion that Iran was going to give up its support for proxies in the Middle East, like Hezbollah or Houthi rebels. But the goal was that in the near term, Iran would not have the capacity to create a nuclear weapon and that potentially years away in the future, 10 to 15 years, when some of the deal's restrictions would fall
0: away, who knows what could happen. If, in a worst case scenario, Iran violates the deal, the same options that are available to me today will be available to any U.S. president in the future. And I have no doubt that 10 or 15 years from now, the person who holds this office will be in a far stronger position, with Iran further away from a weapon, and with the inspections and transparency that allow us to monitor the Iranian program. So then, what problem did
2: President Trump have with that agreement?
1: That's a good question. What he has said is that it has sunsets, which means that there are some restrictions that the deal put on the Iranian regime that go away after 10 or 15 years. And to him, that's unacceptable, and he wants a deal that will be extended. The U.S. side has been pushing the idea of extending the sunsets in perpetuity so that the restrictions on Iran's nuclear c- capabilities uh, would, would always remain in place. For the Europeans, that was a non-starter because that would be, in fact, violating the original deal, and they refused to violate the deal. I will say, though— that he has also installed people in his administration that have been very doctrinaire about wanting to destroy this deal You know, a few days after his election, his now secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, tweeted, looking forward to unraveling the Iran deal. Ambassador Bolton, his national security advisor, has been one of the most staunch critics of not just ripping up the Iran deal, but advocating for the bombing of Iran and regime change in Iran. So... He came in having this very negative view of the deal, calling it the worst deal ever, maybe in terms that he he would concede were hyperbolic, but also installing officials who viewed the destruction of the deal as one of the most important priorities of any future administration. I think that the president very early on saw opposition to the Iran nuclear deal as something that was very popular in the Republican primary. And it was certainly popular at a very important political stop, which is the AIPAC conference, uh, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, where he debuted some of his positions on foreign policy in the Middle East, including announcing the embassy in Israel, but also vowing to rip up the Iran nuclear deal. You know, it was a, a pretty easy applause line. And His initial criticisms of the deal didn't necessarily convey a sort of doctrinaire opposition to it.
2: To what extent was this opposition to the nuts and bolts of what was actually in the deal versus like a personal animosity to things that had come out from the previous administration or the idea that this was an Obama deal and therefore isn't a good deal?
1: Yeah, the president has certainly been animated by overturning things that happened in the Obama era. Obviously, health care is one thing. The Paris Climate Accords is another thing. But that does seem to have been an, an animating principle. And it's Trump's idea
2: here that as that business between Europe and Iran dries up, that Iranians will become so desperate to kind of revive that economic activity that they would be willing to come back to the negotiating table? I mean, is that like the end, the end game here?
1: Yes. Really, what the Trump administration is attempting is similar to what it's attempting in North Korea right now, which is a new maximum pressure campaign against Iran to the point where it brings them to the negotiating table to get an even better deal than the Obama administration got. A number of people are skeptical that that's going to happen.
2: They're skeptical because, unlike in the past, the U.S. isn't doing this in lockstep with the rest of the international community. Instead, we're kind of going out on a limb here, while Russia and China and some of our closest allies in Europe are still trying to make things work and to still keep the deal alive. So John says that the immediate impacts on Iran's economy are going to be much more complicated. Can this deal survive without the U.S., in your opinion?
1: There's a number of ways that you can destroy the Iran deal. He took one of the most aggressive ones— So the notion that this deal is still sort of alive in some way or the other, it has been dealt sort of a death blow. And there is some speculation that the Europeans, the Chinese, the Russians are going to be able to keep this deal going. But nobody that I have talked to knows of any way that that will be sustainable if Trump follows through and implements the policy that he announced this week. What I can say is the people that I've talked to are very doubtful and they don't see a way that it survives because if there are sanctions, as the president said, that hit European companies, those companies are all going to refuse to do business in Iran. Iran will no longer have any incentive to comply with the deal absent the notion that it would be subject to a military strike. So the conventional wisdom is that this has created the destruction of the deal.
2: Trump's decision on the Iran nuclear deal basically unilaterally kills this landmark international agreement. And that feels like a pretty significant step. So I asked John about that. Like, is this normal? Do presidents do this? Like, why should he have to follow through on something that he fundamentally thinks is a bad idea? Is there historical precedent for presidents kind of reneging on these kinds of deals or coming into office and saying, like, never mind, we're just going to back out of this because I don't think it's a good idea?
1: There certainly is some historical precedent. George W. Bush, when he came into office, certainly did not view the Clinton administration's negotiations with the North Koreans and their agreements with the North Koreans as sacrosanct and necessarily something that they were... Bound to continue in the same sort of way. Now, at the same time, we were talking about this Iran deal formally called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. You know, there were certain things that the United States was responsible for, and there were certain things that the Iranians were responsible for. And the fact that the Iranians were continuing to comply with their side of the bargain, it is unusual when a newcoming president breaks a deal that was agreed to by a previous administration. So, while... All presidents have the right to stake out their own foreign policy, and it's not unheard of for them to take the U.S. in a different direction. It's certainly unusual when it comes to the breaking of an actual international agreement. Now, uh, what another number of Trump administration officials were saying was, well, this wasn't a treaty, so we weren't obligated to follow it. It doesn't have any legal standing. The issue with that, a number of European countries have, is that the Europeans didn't view this as an agreement with Barack Obama. They were agree- they're viewing it as an agreement with the United States.
2: So this gets us to a big question about the future of the Iran nuclear deal. Now that Trump has broken that agreement, how are other countries going to respond? And the thing that is driving so much of that response is this issue of economic sanctions and whether the impact of those sanctions will be significant enough to bring down the whole deal. And when you're thinking about that, it's helpful to know exactly what those sanctions are and like what they do and how they work. And for that, we talked to Kelly Magsiman, Vice President of National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Previously, she served as the Iran director on the National Security Council, or the NSC, where she worked on ironing out sanctions against Iran.
3: I actually began working on Iran in the Bush administration. I was the Iran director under Bush NSC, and then later through the Obama NSC. And it, I will tell you, it took close to a decade to really put in place a pretty complicated sanctions architecture that was both Done at the international level with through U.N. Security Council resolutions but the European Union, through the Congress, and also through executive orders. So it's a pretty complicated architecture that took years and years to build, actually. And the only way that we were able to actually build it was to ensure to our allies and our friends around the world that the purpose of the sanctions regime was to try to get to a negotiation uh, and to build leverage heading into that negotiation. The challenge, I think, for the Trump administration now is I don't think anyone trusts that the president really wants to get to a credible negotiation. And so, you know, how long will it take to return to that kind of economic leverage is it even possible? I tend to think it's not that possible at this
2: stage. I think that we kind of throw around this term economic sanctions, but it's not actually clear to everyone, and it's not clear to me, what economic sanctions actually look like, how they affect Iran, how they affect us, how they affect Europe. So what are these sanctions that we're snapping back to? It's a very
3: good question. So we have sort of what we call primary sanctions and secondary sanctions. Primary sanctions being based on U.S. legislation that essentially prevents American
2: businesses from doing business in Iran. For example, Boeing, the American aircraft manufacturer, They'd already agreed to sell 80 planes to Iran, which was like a $17 billion deal. And now, because of the snapback to old sanctions, it looks like that deal is not going to happen anymore. Then there's secondary
3: sanctions, and the secondary sanctions is what's really are probably our most powerful sanctions, and that is they essentially put a choice before our partners that their firms and companies can do business with Iran Or they can do business with the United States financial sector and market. And they can't do both. And they can't do both. So basically, it presents them a choice. And of course, our leverage is the fact that our economy is so large and our financial markets are so important globally. So average countries are going to naturally say, okay, well, I'm going to choose to go with the United States. And so it's a very powerful tool And those are the sanctions that I think most of the countries that are now waiting to see what happens are are most concerned about being put back into place and what that means.
2: What are examples of big companies that could be affected by this?
3: Oh, I think there's plenty. I mean, the Total, French energy company, looking at investing in Iran is probably, if I were to to hazard a guess, is going to avoid engaging in business with the Iranians because they're worried about losing access to the United States and, and what it means for their broader business. And so even if the Europeans, for example, you know, they say right now they're gonna to try to keep the Iranians in the deal, they're gonna to try to adhere to the deal. I do worry that even if governments are there, you know, their private sectors are are gonna make their own choices based on risk, right? So by putting these sanctions back in place, most companies, especially in Europe, are probably gonna stay away. Which will then for the Iranians, they will perceive as a violation of the deal. Because part of the deal was to relax sanctions and get more investment in the economy. So, you know, the
2: Iranians are going to call that a violation. So even if, for example, like France says, look, we're still in it. We're, we still want to try to engage on this. But French companies are like, well, if we have the choice of doing business with America or with Iran, like, we're going to pick America, then Iran will be like, even if that's not the government saying that, that Iran will be like, well, this is not what we were yeah. bargaining for. I mean, that's right? why I think there's this fiction
3: that there was some other kind of alternative to this. I think even if the intentions are good to sort of try to preserve the deal, I think it's a slow motion return to a crisis. <laughs> because I think eventually it's an unsustainable situation for the Europeans, it's unsustainable for the Iranians politically. And so basically this starts to unwind
2: and unravel the deal. What has Iran said? In reaction to President Trump's statement? Well, it
3: was interesting. President Rouhani came out, made a statement, and essentially said that Iran's abiding by the deal. The United States is in violation, that Iran lives up to its commitments. So initially, Iran is playing a strange statesmanlike like um, response so far to it. But, you know, there's also been statements in the past to suggest that the Iranians may return back to a path of enrichment. And so I think it's too early to tell right now, what's going to happen inside Iran. I think certainly the president's decision, I think, strengthened the hand of the Iranian hardliners, some of the more conservative elements of the government. And I could put the moderates in a bad position. And it gave those voices inside Iran who say that the United States can never be trusted, just a stronger hand to play, unfortunately. I don't want to give them too much (laughs) credit. There's not a huge amount of trust with the United States in general. (laughs) So I don't want to overstate that, but I think it's definitely a factor.
2: These implications extend way beyond just the U.S. and Iran. Kelly and other people are worried about the implications that it could have on the rest of the region. Like just Wednesday, the Israeli military said that Iran had fired rockets at soldiers in the Golan Heights. And then on Thursday, Israel retaliated with its own strikes against sites in Syria that are linked to Iran. And there just seem to be
3: huge open questions coming from our friends and allies about, okay, A, what does this mean in the immediate term? But also kind of what's the long game to, A, ensure that the Iranians don't return back to a path to a bomb? What is the plan to prevent the Iranians from acting out in the region further under less constraints And what is the Trump administration's policy vis-a-vis Iran writ large when there's lots of inconsistencies in how the president approaches the Middle East? I think one area is Syria, for example. So the president has made soundings about withdrawing U.S. forces from northeastern Syria. Well, that has profound implications for Iran and its behavior in the region. So the president wants to pressure the Iranians, but yet is signaling that he's going to withdraw U.S. forces, which could potentially open an avenue for the Iranians. They have ways to meddle in places like Iraq, for example. You know, the Iraqis have elections coming up. The Iranians can certainly lean in there and potentially undermine progress in Iraq. So, I mean, there's lots of avenues for the Iranians to make mischief. And I think the United States, I'm hopeful that Secretary Mattis and, of course, Secretary Pompeo have in place the kinds of plans and contingency plans to deal with potential uptick in those
2: areas. As for the prospect of future U.S. negotiations with Iran, it's hard to tell what are the chances that that could actually happen in the near-term future, like that Iran would come back to the table after being ditched by the United States. What I found interesting about his comments was the first portion of it was
3: less about the nuclear issue and more about the nature of the Iranian regime not being able to be trusted. But then he sort of made a confusing comment later about, well, I'm ready to engage the Iranians and try to strike a better deal. So I don't know how serious the president's intent is with respect to a future negotiation. I tend to think that was somewhat of a throwaway, but we'll see in the coming days if they have a more detailed explanation of what the policy actually is now. In my view, there's not really a plan in place to figure out a way to get back to a diplomatic outcome. I think that this is all predicated on the idea that withdrawing from the deal will create, the sanctions will come back, they'll be able to crush the Iranians through economic pressure, and that the regime is relatively weak. I think that's unfortunately a faulty assumption in many respects, but that's, I
2: think, what's driving this approach so far. In the middle of Trump's announcement, one thing that really struck out to me was this quote from the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani. He said, quote, getting rid of America's mischievous presence will be fine for Iran. And I thought that that was really interesting, because that seems like exactly what President Trump wants, and like a fundamental part of what's taking shape as the Trump doctrine, this foreign policy that's focused on creating the impression that America's leader is unpredictable and unyielding and unafraid to create chaos. — But I wondered, what happens as you implement that doctrine when other world leaders also start thinking of President Trump as a, quote, mischievous presence?
3: I mean, I think this sort of classic Donald Trump, he tends to sort of blow things up and then says, well, we'll see what happens. I'm always willing to make a deal.
2: But do you think that is kind of a greater reflection of his foreign policy approach in terms of, like, let's just blow it all up and, like, maybe we can hash this out later, but— This tendency to sort of insert chaos into the process? Oh, I mean, definitely.
3: It's the chaos doctrine, (laughs) for sure. I think part of it is he believes he's the ultimate deal maker, and that nobody can make a deal as good as he can. We'll see how that plays out. He has yet to actually prove that. I think, you know, there's positive signs ahead of the summit with North Korea. But again, we don't actually have an outcome there yet. So I think we'll have to judge how that goes. But in his mind, that's sort of how he approaches things. I think he's kind of a one-man show, which is why there's constantly a disconnect between the president and his national security team, or more broadly, the administration, I think. At the end of the day, he feels he's the decider. It's a very kind of CEO model approach to (laughs) the world. So, and I think he views a level of ambiguity and uncertainty as a strength in terms of its own kind of leverage. I think some of the fire and fury bluster ahead of the summit, I think he feels that
2: worked. Why? Because he got those three Americans freed from North Korea. He got North Korea and South Korean leaders to shake hands in the demilitarized zone for the first time in years. And he's got a summit on the calendar. June twelfth. He's planning to sit down face to face with Kim Jong-un for these historic negotiations. It's clear that he feels confident in that approach vis-a-vis the North Korea
3: summit with the decision around the moving of the US Embassy to Jerusalem. You know, there were lots of predictions that the sky would fall. That didn't happen. So I think he feels that he's had his instincts validated. And so I think that definitely played into how he thought about the Iran decision recently. Unfortunately, I think that's somewhat dangerous because some of these things haven't played out fully. Of course, you know, coming up will be the actual move of the embassy into Jerusalem. So we'll see how that goes in terms of potential violence. And we'll see how it goes with the summit on North Korea. But I think right now, at this moment in time, I think President Trump feels confident that
2: he has the right approach. Part of what has emboldened President Trump to do this has been the success he's seen so far in North Korea. But I'm curious if backing out on this deal with Iran, will that affect what's going on with negotiations with North Korea?
3: Potentially. I think we'll find out um, pretty soon. But of course, there's a link. I think that when the United States reneges on an agreement like this, especially an international multilateral agreement, that has huge implications for future diplomacy and future diplomatic agreements that we make. So will countries believe that they're cutting a deal that can be sustainable beyond any president? I mean, that's an open question now, I think, for sure. I think that, you know, Kim Jong-un is when sort of presented with the prospect of maybe sanctions relief or other parameters of U.S. gives in the negotiation. We'll probably have some questions around that (laughs) given the week's events. And, you know, future arms control negotiations, for example. So I think the impact of what the president did was not just isolated to the Iran issue. I think it's going to have lasting effect on how the world sees American diplomacy and the credibility of that diplomacy. Now, do I think Kim Jong-un is going to make calculations based on his own interests? Yes, of course. I I think that he's going to engage us to extract an end for himself, irrespective of what the president did on Iran.
2: The fallout from the Trump doctrine or the chaos doctrine or whatever you want to call it, it goes both ways. It doesn't just telegraph a message from the president about how he intends to deal with other countries. It could also affect the way that other countries, including U.S. allies, deal with us. But certainly one thing I do worry about is if
3: diplomacy with North Korea eventually doesn't work out well, say the North Koreans renege and we're back to a place where diplomacy falls apart, we're going to need the international community behind us to keep sanctions pressure on the North Koreans. And so the question from the international community is going to be, well, to what end? And do you keep your word that this is really about negotiations?
2: Because whether or not there's a formal agreement between the U.S. and other nations, the problem of Iranian nuclear aspirations is not going to go away. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. And also thank you for uh, folks who have been leaving some really nice reviews about the podcast. Uh, We're working really hard and they've been very encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com/slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Lauren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to John Hudson and Kelly Magsiman for help with this episode.
1: smart speaker owners, did you know
3: that you could listen to The Washington Post on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or Apple HomePod? There's something for everyone, from our podcasts to our short daily flash briefings on history, politics, and D.C. weather. To learn how to listen and to find out what else you can do on your smart speakers, visit WashingtonPost.com slash voice. The
0: Washington, 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 Washington Post. Post.